Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 12 of the Film Trooper Podcast, where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. In today's episode, I interview Jacqueline Galt and James Wilder Hancock of Hot Squatch Entertainment, based right here in Portland, Oregon. But before we begin this episode, I got to let you know that my mic has a bit of an echo to it. It's only because this is the first time I've ever recorded two people at the same time, and I had to use two different recorders. So it might sound a little weird, but, um, you know, so I apologize for that. Also, this podcast ran a little long, so my apologies again, and I'm going to have to cut it into two parts. And um, I'm going to try to get this podcast down to an hour. Eventually, I'll get my interviewing skills better, but just hang in there with me, okay? As we've done in the previous podcast, here is today's quick tip. Remember, every film you make and release is the equivalent to launching a new product to the market. No two films are the same. Each film has its own audience and its own set of rules, and that's how you have to reach them. So new films equal a new product launch. So what does that mean? It means that you got to do all the same hard work with every film that you make over and over again. But if you can have several projects going on sort of under a studio system of your own, you'll essentially diversify your chances of creating revenue. So don't rely on just one film being a hit so you can make the next one. That's sort of the older way of doing things. And the new way of doing things should be diversify. Diversify like the major studios do. And you could do the same thing as long as you have that mindset going into all of this. So there you go. That's the quick tip of the day. Diversify. And speaking of diversification, that's what my guests at Hot Squatch Entertainment are lining up with their new venture. So let's listen in and enjoy part one of this long interview. Thanks. Yeah, you can make sure it doesn't fall over. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to bump it with my drink either because it's nothing worse than <laughs> mic bump. Well, welcome. We're here at the Tabor Tavern. I'm here with Jacqueline Galt. Say hello. Hello. And James Wilder Hancock. Hello. 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 And both of you are um, founding members of Hot Squash Entertainment. Correct. To Hot Squash. To Hot Squash. We are. Hey, what are you drinking, by the way? I am drinking vodka and club soda with lime. And you? New Deal vodka. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a Zig Swig. I don't know, some Lompoc beer? That beer? Lompoc? Lompoc? It's good. Mm -hmm. Lompoc or Lompoc? Long tradition. Lompoc. They have a great selection of beverages here. It's made by prisoners, right? By prisoners? (laughs) This is a big prison. I dated a girl. If it's not, it should be. I dated a girl that lived in Lompoc. Prison brewery. That's an excellent idea. I think McMenamins is working on that right now. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking over the... the... They are taking over a prison, yes. (laughs) Well, welcome. So... We're here to talk about uh, helping like filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And that's what this podcast is all about, Film Trooper. And uh, we'll just start off the, with the just basically films. Like, what are some of your favorite films? Like one or two, or, or something like that. And how did it influence you? Do you remember? We'll start with you, Jen. Jackie. Unfortunately, I grew up in the '80s, so all the films that really influenced me were like the really like bizarre films of the '80s. Like, I grew I, up um, in the '80s. Come on. There was, was some like, good it, stuff there. But, like, my family, I grew up with, like, the comedies, like, Airplane and Spaceballs and um, uh, 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 um, Spies Like Us and, <laughs> um, 
what was the one with um oh I'm forgetting their names um but like really like screwball comedies uh stuff that made very little sense it was just all about like a laugh a minute yeah um that's what I grew up with and so that's kind of my sensibility and my upbringing was these crazy screwball comedies and then also kind of the teen teen ink stuff the John Waters stuff the um Everything Winona Ryder did, like Heather's and um, Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice. I mean, she was kind of like my teen icon in the '80s. Um, and you know, a, 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 and you had the hair to match. <laughs> you know, kind of like the Frankenstein's monster, like in Edward Scissorhands, was so much sexier than the Edward than the the Edward Cullen sparkly vampire. I mean, it was like. Such right. a different kind of. Um, we showed my daughter uh, Heather's like, uh-huh. last week, so it was. Um, yeah, she's eleven. Uh-huh. You know, her friend's eleven. We, was, we felt that might be a good test to teach them about high school. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, how, how did she take it? Oh, she was. They were laughing like left and right. I think. Uh, yeah, it's. I think they appreciate the sensibility and. But although there's some subject matters that got in there, we're like, whoa, but... Um, <laughs> I forgot about that part. You know, <laughs> you do. You forget about, like... Like, if you actually try to watch something like Saturday Night Live uh, or Saturday Night Fever, what is that? That the John Schultz movie? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like there's a lot of subject matters in that. You're like, whoa, forgot about that movie. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but now, I mean, you know, I'm a mom of an uh, almost 11-year-old boy, and so every movie I see in the theater is a family film. I mean, fortunately, he's getting to the age where... I can expand those horizons so it's not all about, you know, Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo and Despicable Me. Um, he's kind of branching out into into stuff that's um, more sci-fi films, um, stuff that, that kind of the whole family can enjoy, but they're not technically like kid movies. Right. Um, so I think that definitely affects what I look at with, with Hot Squatch. It's like, you know, what, what are the films that... I want for my family. What are the films that align with my sensibilities? As, with the crazy comedy I grew up with, um, and then this whole like world of sci-fi that you know I grew up with. You know, Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica, and, and you know these. In, in kind of melding all that together and trying to figure out how what are the commonalities between these seemingly completely unconnected genres? Yeah. Um, and there are, I mean. Many. <laughs> that makes sense, you know. Like I said, I have an 11 year old too, so I totally yeah. understand about like where your movie intake changed right. for the last few years, and where you, I don't remember ever seeing like an, uh, an artsy independent film for the longest time, mm-hmm. you know. So, and yourself, what about you, James? Well, uh, boy, she said it. I mean, pretty <laughs> you much. Too. Although I, <laughs> you and Heather's, uh, yeah, me Wine and Heather's, <laughs> me and Heather's, exactly. <laughs> We bonded. <laughs> My hair was exactly the same. Um, you were Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> I was um, no, but a lot of the like the comedy. You know, she talked about comedies and sci-fi. Um, it'd be hard to narrow it down to a couple of movies. Star Trek certainly. Star Star Trek the original series, and then Star Wars the first film. Those two things definitely got me interested in it sort of brought me from because i was a big sci-fi reader mm-hmm. and so i started gobbling up all the sci-fi visual stuff i could get 
and uh, eventually got to the point where uh, it all just sort of merged in together and did that with pretty much all the other genres I fell in love with. So pretty much anything comedy, the old classics, I loved anything by Evan Costello. Um, uh, all of the road movies, the Hope and Crosby mo- road movies, uh, all that kind of stuff. Musicals, um, sort of the gamut. Um, I was a latchkey kid, so I watched a lot of stuff on TV, which is where I saw a lot of the stuff for the first mm-hmm. time was in reruns on TV. So that is actually interesting because you think about you know when we were growing up. I remember growing up and seeing the Little Rascals as like. Because they would show like Bugs Bunny cartoons, but right. they also show the Little Rascals yeah. and Stan and Laurel. So that was sort of still part of your upbringing before you went to school. Mm-hmm. On the weekends, they would have Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy, Dracula, all those types of films, the road movies. So that was a sort of constant rotation in the weekends and stuff like that. I remember that. staying home sick and watching Perry Mason all day. Isn't it's crazy? Yeah. Like that was you know the, the courtroom drama. It was way before Law and Order. That was like it was Perry Mason. And I think about this new generation that they don't—they're not seeing that rotation. You know, like mm-hmm. with this on-demand. Like it's interesting. Like I wonder at what point some yeah. young person's going to discover Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers. You know, Jack Benny. Uh, so all things become obsolete a lot quicker. Yeah, because they're maybe. not. They don't. It's more available be, though. Right. It's all available there. But they have to be introduced to it. Like right. where we were, you know, growing up, it yeah. was just on TV. So you. That's just, all there was. Right. So it made sense. Like years later, they would make it a, a Little Rascals movie because there was some connection to a generation that had seen it. Fortunately, know. my kids are being well schooled in the classics. Because <laughs> 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 they have yeah. seen an Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein almost every Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did? Is that like a tradition in your family to throw that in there? It has been for a long time. I usually watch something, uh, and uh, Avon Costello meet Frankenstein's a good one because does it have all of them in the werewolf and uh, Dracula? It does. It That's does. Right. That's does have all of them and the Invisible Man at the end. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Look at that. I forgot that spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> I never oh yeah, I, I, I give a, I don't give a hoot about spoilers, so beware. <laughs> I think beware. when I was a kid, I used to do um, was it uh, Costello's voice? I bet, I bet. We can. <laughs> Oh, well, that's not bad. You can edit it. You can edit in his voice yeah. and make it sound perfect. <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to the next question, which is funny. Um, so every film at the heart of it is a story, right? right? So my big question, to you guys, is why do we even need stories, in your opinion? A story is a window. It's a window to a completely different place. Something to hang the special effects on, really. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that? <laughs> I can give you the bumper sticker that didn't drive in LA around the that thing. <laughs> I think we get, you know, in general, as, as human persons, we um, get caught up in our own little bubble. And to have these windows into worlds that we wouldn't otherwise have any knowledge of, whether they're worlds that we're in awe of or worlds that we're opposed by or worlds that bring us joy or sorrow or grief or whatever they are, they're. they're it provides us access to to stories that aren't in our world. And I think they're important because we need to, to understand that there is a bigger place out there. And that it's, it's easy to get caught up in... You know, for instance, like you take like a, a, a social drama and... Well, you're sitting down, you're watching this really intense social drama. It's like you don't 
it takes you out of your little comfort bubble and says, oh my God, I am so grateful for everything that I have because there are so many people that don't have what I have. No matter how little I have, it's always more than somebody else. Or, and, and then there's, you know, the other side of that. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's, there's always something outside of your bubble that's bigger or different or something you should be exposed to. Yeah, yeah, sure. What, what's, what are your ideas about why we need stories? You know, my, my, uh, I'm always, I'm always distilling things down into the simplest thing, uh, possible that I can. <laughs> um, simple and elegant. And, um, for, I've spent a lot of time studying story and, um, for me, it boils down to the fact that story is primal. That's just what it is. It's primal. It's part of who we are. It always has been. <laughs> it always will be. People are always looking for good stories. And um, and we seem to tell uh, pretty much the same ones over and over again with <laughs> with different in different settings, in different genres, in different this and different that. And that's one of the things I love about it. It's like there's always good material. There's always You're always looking to be surprised by something which... Uh, can still happen over and over again. Um, I don't believe that everything's been told or done. Um, there's certainly infinite combinations. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately what it comes down to is everybody's hungering for a good story all the time. And uh, I happen to be hooked by the whole visual audio sensation of it and, um, and love relating stories in that way. Yeah, you, it's comforting for as filmmakers to know that at the core of that is true, the primal, that it's, there's a need, there's an emotional need that will always be there. So you just have to, if there's that demand, business-wise, you got to just supply it. it right. to- oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. It to- it's one of the best businesses to be in. It's sort of like being in a restaurant, owning a restaurant. It's, <laughs> right. it's almost about as risky. Yeah. Um, but it is one of those primal things. It's like, and you know, people dinner in a movie. Right. Mm-hmm. There you go. Story right. food. Do you yeah. want a burger and a comedy? Do you want a, a steak and a drama? If, if it's do a, you want a, if it's want? a great night, you'll end up in sex. I mean, you don't get more primal. <laughs> you don't get more primal than that. <laughs> and then a kid. And then, and then a kid. Old. Endless <laughs> circle of life. <laughs> So, okay, so, moving on. So, you know that all stories have, like, a beginning, and, like, Joseph Campbell talks about, um, and Christopher Volger, Volgers talk about this ordinary world. Like, it, like every story somewhat starts in this ordinary world. So, we, we establish with the audience, like, hey, this is, the, this is the rules of this world. Right. So, we establish that first. So, the question is, where were you born, Jacqueline? I was born in Vancouver, Washington. So, I'm basically a native born and bred. I was born in Vancouver. I spent 10 years living in Roseburg. I moved to Roseburg, Oregon when I was three. was there until early junior high. It is um, about, what, like 100 miles north of the California border. Oh, okay, okay. Um... It's, you know, and it was, it's a great place to be a kid, an amazing place to be a kid. It's a total small town. There's nothing to do. You ride your bikes. You, you grab a piece of cardboard. You climb to the top of the hill, and you ride it down the hill. I mean, it's really just like small it's town, yeah. Americana kind of town. You had my life. But <laughs> when you get to be a te- I mean, I'm so grateful that we moved away from Roseburg before I became a teenager because, Lucky. you know, there's there's... In, in those small towns, there's no there's no outlets for kids. It's like sex, drugs, 
Um, that's about all there is. You no, know, what, there's it, blowing up things, shooting things. <laughs> Believe me, I know. Okay, so there's there. more. You can oh, yeah. blow things up, you can shoot things, you can get pregnant, or you can get, like, you become an addict. I mean, there's really... Um, Thank you. Small town America has Thank gotten you. really... It's not that it's wholesome bad. place in the teenage years, because you get as a teenager, you get bored and... You find things to it's, occupy. It's like your breaking time. Amish. Breaking Amish. It's like breaking Amish, exactly. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, my family moved back to Vancouver, Washington when I was in junior high. Um, and then I lived here until I, 18, moved to Philadelphia, lived there for a couple of years, then to Seattle. And I oh, moved okay. back to Portland in 98. And I've okay. been here ever since. So, so there you are. That's your ordinary That's world. my ordinary world. And what about you, James? This salad is fantastic. <laughs> you know what? Let, you can eat and talk. We'll, awesome. We'll work wow. this thing out together. <laughs> all together. Well, mm. Eat and talk? I've told never hey, what to did do you that. get anyway? You have a veggie. I got the veg- chickpea veggie patty burger and salad. And, uh, boy, I don't know what that it's, dressing is. but It's like a house salad, right? They have mm-hmm. a great dressing salad. here. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. What did you get? I have some amazing marinated strawberries and goat cheese and hazelnuts with arugula. Mm. And it's oh, delicious. Yeah. The pickled strawberries. Oh, the pickled strawberries. They are fabulous. I'm sorry. I don't know. I just... I just squirted myself. I just dropped my uh, cheese on the table. <laughs> I'm going to eat it anyway. I squirted myself a um, Tabor burger with a fried egg on top with some fries. This is the perfect Portland table right here. Exactly. We're representing... <laughs> if, there, if there were some Thai food on here, we'd have it about covered. This used to be a Thai restaurant. So, there you go. There you go. There you go. The yeah, circle of life. The circle of life. <laughs> so the the... A microphone. <laughs> All right, we're back. All right, James, where were you born? <laughs> <laughs> Jump right in. Go. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. <laughs> I was born in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., in the District of Columbia. (laughs) Uh, And um, spent the first, uh, I don't know, five years of my life there, then moved just outside of there to Maryland, Atlanta, Maryland. Lived there for two or three years. Where in Maryland? Atlanta, Maryland. Atlanta, Maryland? Lanham. I thought you said Land of Maryland. Lanham. My, uh, my uncle... L-A-N-H-A... Not the land of Maryland. Land well, of it Maryland. was in the land of Maryland, yes. That's what I thought you said. But specifically land of Maryland, which is right next to D.C., basically, right on the... When my parents Now, divorced. where is that in relationship to Ellicott City? My my uncle and aunt live out in Ellicott City in Maryland. Do you know where that no is? I have no idea. Oh, you're near too Bethesda? young. I could Google it. Okay. <laughs> my mom worked in Bethesda. Oh, my sister hospital, worked in Bethesda. Though. In a hospital. The Naval Hospital? Dun, dun, dun! You're connected somehow. It's just getting weirder and weirder. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to find out we're related by the end of this podcast. (laughs) Someone help give birth to you. (laughs) And then, um, so my mom was uh, born and raised. Are you ready for this? Oh, no. Where? In Battleground, Washington. Ooh! Basically, Vancouver. My for, grandpa okay. lived there for a while. Those of you who don't know, my grandfather owned land in Battleground, Ooh. and when the highways started going through, it got divided and sold and divided and sold till eventually he was in a old folks' home, and the land was all sold and gone away. But um, but I used to go out there and pick 
blackberries mm. and blueberries and it was good times. But anyway, because my mom was born and raised there, about two or three years after the divorce, we moved for her back out close to Vancouver, Washington, Baker, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> I was seven or eight years old. I had no idea where Oregon was. I still didn't know how to pronounce Oregon. How'd you pronounce it? Oregon, like everyone else. <laughs> of course, because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, moved out basically into no man's land in Baker, Oregon, eastern Oregon. And, uh, that's like saying Nolens is spelled correctly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I spent, uh, uh, you know, my formative years trying to recover from being ripped away from my fantastic home in Maryland, and then um, pulled out to Baker, Oregon, where it was allowed less than 10,000 people, speaking of small towns. And I graduated from high school there, and then moved to Portland, went to school in my mother's alma mater, Lewis and Clark College. Okay. Uh, at the princely sum of $9,000 a year. <laughs> the private school at that point was, fortunately, it was all paid for because my grandfather had gave me a, left the trust fund. So I was a trust fund just student. Just a baby. Yeah. Um, and $9,000 a year. You know, how much, you, know, a year. you know how much it costs to go to school there now? Oh, God. I don't... Over forty grand a year. The school it's... I went to in Philly was like ten grand a year. Like In, the, in like 1990, that was like... A pile of money. I, I don't know how. My, my kids are going to have to invent something that makes them a lot of money before they go to college. My kid yeah. wants to go to MIT. Like in high school. <laughs> He's going to have to like get some mad scholarships. It. Yeah. We're sending ours to France. <laughs> Our oldest son wants to go to France and live there and go to school there. So, like, great. Establish citizenship there and get free school. There you go. Love it. I like your play. So you basically, yeah. since then, went to college and you stayed here. And I pretty much stayed here except for some trips away. I, uh, when I first started in this business 22 plus years ago, I uh, spent three years in L.A. Uh, living and working there. Um, I was away for a few years in the Army uh, in Georgia. Uh, spent some time traveling around, but Portland's been home pretty much since 82. I always okay. come back to Portland and now I'm pretty much rooted here there you go so it um, so at this point so this is like your ordinary world but at what point did you have like the Robin McKee's inciting incident moment where you knew that you wanted it to work in film like do you have like a do you have like a magic moment that you remember like I, I want to do this well I you know I had a weird transformation in that I um I, I entered film coming out of, like, the worst year of my entire life. <laughs> Seriously. Like, the year of my life that about destroyed me and my family financially, emotionally, everything. Um, and so it was really... I came into the industry as... Um, I needed an outlet. I needed... A, and, and I started out as a writer. I, I had a screenplay that I wrote... That's ugly and gritty and raw and disgusting, and it's nothing that I will ever ever produce. No one should therapy. read it at no one... the risk of their own health, really. <laughs> but it was my therapy. It was my therapy. It's like I had to vomit out this horrific year of my life in order to like move past it. And then 
in that process, you know, I'd never written a screenplay before. I don't even know, I mean, why I really wanted to do it. But um, I had this story that I needed to, like, and it wasn't about my experience. It was about something completely different. Um, But it was my therapy. And, And in that process, I started getting involved in the film industry and started really understanding the power of story and what it did for me and my therapy and I became it became like a passion and an obsession of mine and so so really it was like the worst year of my life transitioned into helping me find my passion and what I'm meant to be doing for the next 40 years was this worst year is it correlated with the economy crashing or anything it was I I opened a business during a recession and I funneled my life savings my family's life savings all of the credit we had available everything financially into this business that failed within a year and it was and I mean we're just now kind of this was you know six years ago we're just now kind of like cresting the hump of like climbing out of it Um, perfect time to get into movies yeah (laughs) such a safe investment such a secure industry you are set for life brilliant (laughs) you want another drink (laughs) go home you're drunk No, but really, it was like, you know, it it was the, and just the, um, being involved in an industry and a community that's so embracing and warm and welcoming, and it was exactly what I needed at that time, and so I glommed onto it, and I can't let go. Let me ask you something about, when you're talking about the community, like, we're talking specifically about the, like, the Portland community, the film community, it definitely feels more supportive, you know, in Los Angeles, you can meet a lot of people. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's like this tongue and sh- like two faced thing about it. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll help you, but then there's still this element of jealousy or uh, contempt, uh, contempt for anybody who makes any sort of success. Right. It's such a hard place to to live in that world because you could be working along somebody and one day they're making it. Like, right. Like, well, and I think that, that, that that's true in Portland too. Because that goes you, on here. We're all. It's so just encouraged there. Okay. It's part of the culture. Right. Well, and I think that we're, we're all working so hard, and we're all so passionate, and we're all so hungry for not not success on an ego level, but success on a we-want-to-make-a-living-doing-what-we-love-doing level. Right. Um, that when we see other people succeeding, we, we, we're constantly looking at them. Are they worthy? What did they do to get there? Are they... Um, how do I mimic that? What what did they do that I should be doing? I mean, we, we, we analyze it on so many different levels. It's not... It's unlike any other industry in that way. I noticed in, like, the... Entre- fashion, maybe. Yeah. Maybe fashion. <laughs> maybe words. Yeah. I noticed on, like, in the entrepreneurial space, like, uh-huh. people, like, working on their online entre- online businesses. Yeah. That community seems to be fairly supportive. It's kind of more of a wide net. But... Um, I don't see it as prevalent in that community where uh, where somebody's jealous of another person's success. Well, well, they, they, they seem when to be you're like, looking at like tech IPs, it's completely different because yeah. it, it's it's their um, they're new and different, and they're unlike anything else. We're not doing anything new and different, really. We're we're all telling stories and making movies, and so it's not like we have a new invention or a new product or a new. It's it's it's. But we'll tell you it's new. We'll tell you it's new. Well, you are. We're new, yeah. Of course it's new. <laughs> well, it be the format. You've never seen anything like it before. Right. 
but it's <laughs> but they're all stories they're all movies they're all like the, the same widget basically um our paint our paint is prettier our fighting's pretty <laughs> uh, well, I will, i'll have another you want another, yes, another round? I will have your chocolate porter. Thanks. Mm. Thank you. Choco chocolate. I'm going down the list on the board. Do it. Nice. <laughs> We're going to be here all night. That's right. I have a long board. It's a long list. <laughs> uh, so you, yeah, that makes sense. So that you know, I was just, I was just curious about that. So that, so you had this moment, and then. But deep down inside, you must have been like, you know what? If I'm going to go down, I'm going to do something that I love. Well, uh, well, for me, I mean, I was fortunate in that um, I felt embraced from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people that I respected locally here in the community were encouraging me. And it was, like, so different that than anything I'd ever experienced before. Because I was kind of in this vomiting out ugly phase of my life. And being told that, being validated and assured and uh, supported. It's like rehab. It was like rehab. It was seriously like rehab. <laughs> down and how creative for people. failed business owners. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Portland. Come to Portland. Fail and we love you. We'll turn you, you around. Exactly. Well, fail, I mean, failure is, that's just part of it, isn't it? Oh, being oh, somebody oh absolutely. Just, I've, I've failed so many times. So many times, and and I don't really think of it as failure, though. It's just like it's you, learning. You, you learn, yeah, yeah, as you go. It's interesting because, um, like in the online entrepreneurial world, entrepreneurial world, they talk about that type of thing. Like you know, there's a fine line of like you doing something and failing, and doing something, and then it's a success. Right. Like you become successful in like one thing, but you might have failed like twelve other things. But you make that one successful venture, and then you're somewhat a genius. You know what I mean? It's like the, the whole point is like there's such a fine line. Like it, it, it could be like 15 failures. Well, yeah. and you know, so and I like, heard a story. You know, you look at how many times like these like crazy billionaires have filed bankruptcy in their career. It's like they've had so many failed businesses before they get to their big heaping pile of money. Yeah. And even no risk, that, no reward, mm, right? Yeah. Pile there you of go. money. Pile Look of at, money. Mm, what are you, no <laughs> <laughs> mm. Piles of money. Piles so what money. about you, James? What do you, um, do you have like a, like this magic moment that you knew oh. that you wanted to be into film? Funny you should use the word magic. <laughs> Was it a magic show? <laughs> kind of. You were molested. Okay. My, my, um, well, my first love was magic. I wanted to be a magician. And, um, seriously, I was just fucking, and I studied right. magic and, uh, got really into it. He was it. a dork. <laughs> yes. Bill Bixby's The Magician on television was one of my favorite shows. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I, I, I just loved that whole thing. And when I, um, it was Star Wars and then really the, uh, plethora of, behind-the-scenes information that was available about the making of Star Wars that started oh, yeah. coming out. That And, you know, I was an avid reader of, like, uh, Fangoria and Cinema Fantastique and a lot of those things. So yeah. there was, you know, I could see, like, what was on the screen and then, like, delve into, like, you know, months and months of issues talking about various aspects of behind-the-scenes stuff. And for me, it was the same as doing 
the things that I studied about doing a magic show. They're basically doing the same process of like breaking down, you know, the the the, the illusion that you want to create. You know, just what is that? You know, and, and a lot of illusions at that point. Like when you look at Doug Henning and uh, uh, who else? Like Copperfield. They were all telling stories throughout their whole act. It's all about storytelling. And so, you know, you decide what story you want to tell, then you break that down, and what are the pieces, and it all, that whole process, it just felt like magic to me, the same kind of thing. Um, and that festered for a while, while I tried various other things throughout the course of my life, and then eventually I came back to it and realized I just couldn't avoid it anymore. It was just one of those things, like, I have to, I have to get into this. And for me, it was all about the creative at that point, um, the business yeah. end of it. I learned, and I'm still learning, but it's all uh, not, it was never my favorite part uh, until I found the creativity in that, but we can talk about that later if you want. Um, so, thank you. So, I kind of came in and do it that way, really as a kid, and then seeing, seeing the, a lot of these movies, seeing especially fantasy and sci fi mm-hmm. things, seeing the way that like uh, an emotional moment moves people, the things that, and that's sort of the magic part of it, too. And that's the same thing that magicians talk about, you know, when you see that look in their eyes and on their face, uh, when you create, you know, you go through this set of mechanics to make it, that's the magic, is the is the interaction between the magician yeah. and the audience. That's, that's where the magic happens. And so, for me, that's what filmmaking's like, is you're trying to create that magic um, and do it in a way that presents itself on a screen... That's repeatable, which is kind of anathema. Do you have to a, a lot movie that you can't get enough of, like that you have virtually <laughs> memorized from beginning to end? No, I wouldn't say. But I, the, there was a period of time that, uh, for about a year and a half, that I watched over and over and over again the whole um, the Ring trilogy. Uh. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I had I, and for, and and again, it sort of gets back to the storytelling. I was like, no matter how many times I saw that thing, I could always watch it again. Yeah. And and I could land. I could watch the second one. I could watch the third yeah. one. I could watch them out of order. It didn't really matter. It's like, oh, what do I want to see this time? I pop it in, and like within five minutes, I'm hooked. Yeah. And um, you know, it's magic. There's the yeah. magic again. I'm like, see, really, this is still working on me. For me, it was the Goonies when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. When I was like at between the ages of ten and thirteen, I probably saw that movie a hundred times. Mm. Like, not exaggerating at all. No, Ask my mom; she will totally confirm it. I had it memorized. I could watch it and recite every line, including the Spanish lines, and I don't speak Spanish because it, there was something about that—the the, the magic, the story, the the kids that are like saving their families and the world and being from a small town and like from a family that struggled financially that was like such a like empowering it doesn't matter how old you are where you come from you can make a difference you're not the only one the um i probably interviewed or talked to two other people that said the goonies was a major goonies Goonies was a big one Two years from now, Hot Squash will be announcing Goonies Two. They've been talking about uh, uh, Goonies Two forever. I've been, I've but been they're waiting for Hot Squash to get on board <laughs> to really make it happen. I think they need a good script. There you go. <clears throat> so now we you got guys, some good writers. Yeah, you have these moments like this is uh, now you're hooked. Now you're in. 
Yeah. Now it's this poison that you guys have uh, drank, yeah. you know, drank. And so um, I think now just mo- pushing forward, at what point did you guys get together and decide that you wanted to create Hot Squatch? Like, how did you guys come together? And, like, what – let's just get on. Like, what is the vision for – all the stuff where you guys came from to what is the purpose? I think there was a roofie involved because I woke up. <laughs> I woke up the next morning and I'm like, "What just happened? <laughs> You're stuck. That's not my signature. I couldn't have done that." Are <laughs> oh, you signing a business deal? You didn't even know. <laughs> is that it? See, she caught you. Yeah, Shanghai. Like, That's you know, why I was Shanghai. James and I, we knew each other socially for for years before we became business partners, um, and it was. I received a script from Peter Furman. Our other partner. Our other partner, who was... Um, I shall want you remain to nameless. This. Oh, wait. We no, just we named just him. Named him. No, you should and name him. He's on your website. Somebody's <laughs> going to see it. <laughs> I read the script, and I saw that James is attached to it. So my first call or email or text or whatever it was was like, let's talk about blue lights. I want it. So basically, I bullied my way onto that project. That's where the roofie came in. That's where the roofie came in. <laughs> we met here in that corner right over there. Really? <laughs> Seriously. It was. It was. it was. it was that corner right over there. Look at him. He has no idea. Back, here we are. Back here. Back here. Right there. Can you see it, people? Can you see it? It's right over there. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and we sat over there, and I said, there's, there's something about this. I think we agreed that, that there was something about the concept, the root, the core of the project that resonated with, that could resonate, had the potential to resonate with so many people, um, our generation, our children, the generation above us. I mean, it was just like one of those, it was like the E.T. moment. Hmm. It was like this film that it has such universal appeal just from a concept level that I couldn't not be involved. Like, I, I couldn't allow this project to happen and not dig my claws in, even if I had to, like, just just follow him around. Can I play? Can I play? Can I play? Can I play? Um, and then, you know, and that kind of, like, started the relationship. And then, you know, then I was working on another project. And I was like, hey, James, are you interested in this concept? And he's like, absolutely. And so it, it kind of snowballed from there when it's like we had all these projects in the works that we were calling upon each other to help out with and then it just kind of made sense it got to a point where it's just like this it just makes sense to we're already working together Against We're all my better instincts. As a team. Oh, shush you. <laughs> um, well, I mean, because I, I got to say that I wasn't really looking for another. I, I was partners with Peter right. in a couple of projects, and we were sort of formalizing over a couple of projects, but nothing beyond that. And I wasn't really looking for partners. I've been through a lot of partnerships in mm-hmm. my life, and. Um, the worst year of my life. None of them. I never want to partner again. None of them. <laughs> you really have a partner in a business. Yeah, see, oh, okay. so it's like I guess, it's like married people when you find right. it's like you find the right person when you're not looking for the right person for that person. Right. Uh, we were totally not looking, but um, but there we were. We fell in love over blue lights, and uh, and 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 as it turned out, as as we're discovering through the course of this interview, we have a lot of commonalities. Right. The, the types of things. Really, the mandate, the the structure, the the core of what Hot Squatch is comes out of the things that we love. Right. And it just so happens that we love a lot of the same things. 
which is very helpful. Now, it's interesting because I think you lucked out because, well, you're not, we haven't disclosed here, which is that you have a tremendous marketing background, right. which is almost like a, uh, a huge bonus to any partnership in the film world because you have a lot of creative people a lot of times, but you don't necessarily have somebody who has that business sense. It's sort of like Walt Disney. It's really his brother, Roy, right. that did all the stuff behind the scenes while his brother was able to be creative and be the, the voice. and the, the But it was his brother making all the deals with the banks, doing all that type of stuff, and making, you know, making the ship run a lot. So... Uh, so Jacqueline comes with that. So yeah, now you know who does all the work. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> but no, but to, not to yeah, why are you it. here, James? <laughs> but, yeah. But if you'd like to talk some more about me. <laughs> <laughs> but you are um, you're currently but working. He's like the he knows the ship stuff. You can say about, shit. You can okay, say, say no, shit. Awesome. Is, I can say shit. shit. Um, the shit ship. Like where I am, and, and that's and that's like, like that's where the the beauty part of it all comes in. It's like I'm not a production person. I don't know. I mean, I only know how a set runs from fumbling through it on, on a bunch of projects that I've worked on. Like I don't really, really, really understand how, for let's say a, a union set runs. I don't know. Right. Um. But James, James, James might have a little <laughs> bit of an idea of how that happens. Uh, but what you didn't see, I on do the... a little bit because I'm also a member of the local union. Exactly. There you go. And IATSE, and of course by right. connection AFL-CIO. So it's a matter. Of, it's a, it's a, it, it came down to like see a need, fill a need. To quote a favorite movie of mine, Robots. Um, <laughs> nice. It's like, nice it, reference. <laughs> yeah. It's it's really. It's that simple. It is that simple. It's 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 that you you're drawn to people for a reason because you need them and the universe and fate and whatever you believe in is going to like plop if if you're on the right path, they're gonna plop you with the people that you're supposed to be with mm-hmm. for what you need. And um so- I needed somebody that understood how production runs. And it just so happens I've been spending the last 22 years studying production and making <laughs> movies. So, um, so yeah, I brought that to the table. A little bit. Right, right. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> now, you made a, you know, um, we'll get into, you made a film, it's on Netflix, it's the one with the, uh, What's yes? Everman's War. Everman's War. War. The first film, the first feature film I produced. Yes. Okay, I saw some of that. It was really good. Oh, so thank I you. mean, I you remember cutting through it, and it was like it was very much more dramatic, like you know, uh, serious than I, you know, I don't know what I was expecting, you know, but it was, it was, you know, a, a comedy called Everman's War. Right, There's right, only right. a little comedy in there, yeah, yeah. and it's very subtle. <laughs> but you know what? It was almost like a. Um, but it is I love Saving Private Ryan. I love ba- Band of Brothers, and it kind of reminded me of like a sli- a slice of that. Like here's like a smaller story to that. Should have had you when we were doing the log lines. Okay, because that's pretty much what we were, that's pretty much what we were going for. Um, we were uh, told it was right around the time that Band of Brothers was just ending their run, mm-hmm. and um, that was a huge influence on us. And that movie was based on the story of the executive producer and the director, his father's experience in World War II. So it was this whole personal thing, and um, yeah, it's, uh, it resonates I, with a few people. I think it's really cool. I. What I love about those sort of World War II stories or those war stories, mm-hmm. anybody who's survive, a survivor of that, the more stories 
that we could tell or that those unique um, experiences, it's sort of you're making a record of it. And I think that was the whole uh, effort of like Spielberg and Tom Hanks with the the effort to to preserve like the Holocaust victims because there's so many other stories besides right. just sort of the Schindler List or the say they they knew that that whole war had so many sub stories. So it was really cool. You can notch that part of like you know museum piece you know to be part of that. So congratulations yeah. on that and it's worth checking out for anybody to see. It's Every Man's War on Netflix. There you go. I just like and. And Jacqueline, you, you know, you had your short film. What was that with Bryn? What was the sack called? lunch? Sack lunch. It's the most disgusting piece of film. Yes, oh. but you know what it was? It was an audience. You <laughs> weren't making me cringe right now. No. <laughs> That's how powerful it is. Okay, so you were at the uh, Willamette Writers Film Lab because you were hobnobbing. Right. Yeah, hobnobbing. But the audience reaction to the piece was what you would want to have happen. Ooh, but, uh, but then yeah. laughing and then clapping. Right. So there he is. What you just heard her grunt out. That's the reaction. Right. <laughs> now, where can people... Can anybody see it online? It's on Vimeo. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, just search for Sack Lunch on Vimeo. It'll pop up. Okay. I'll put a link to it all, yeah, too, yeah. on my I website. So Don't be eating or... Don't eat just or think about eating. Or thinking about eating or... Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. Don't eat while watching the film. And that was, like, the first ever, other than... Um, a, a, a teaser I did for that I didn't like produce or direct or anything really and it was all like uh, uh, Jay Cornelius that kind of like managed the project before that that was um, what was to never be the vomiting screenplay that I wrote before um, <laughs> like Sack Lunch was like my first real like it was my baby now let me ask you something it's finished. It's uh-huh. done. Did you ever have a moment of like, just a pat on your back, like, holy shit, I did this? My, well, the best pat on the back. Uh, it was it was selected to screen at the um, SAG Foundation Showcase in New York City on Broadway, and like you had to be there in order in order to screen there. Like the director had to be in attendance, and I was broke, and. Um, a lovely, amazing friend of mine, um, Ashley, who works for an airline, says, here's a free ticket. Go. Awesome. Um, so I went and I, I stayed at like a roach-infested motel in New York City. A and lot of I sat in the audience. And they like, all are in New York yeah, City. It's just yeah. so many except, old hotels. Except for three star and above. Exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was like a one and a half. That extra star is you have to get rid of all roaches. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, I was like, I was there by myself in this audience of like, of SAG members. Because uh, it, it was a SAG short. Well, obviously, in order to qualify. Um, and I was like this big in my seat, like itty bitty tiny, like watching it screen. Because it had screened locally and at other film festivals. But, like, New York City just felt so big. And I watched it and. After it was over, they invited all of the, the the directors up on stage, and we had to introduce ourselves. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm Jacqueline Galt, and I'm I'm responsible for that disgusting short film you just saw. <laughs> and the room erupted, and that was like, I, it was like my one rock star moment. Like I really felt like, okay, Did you do a fist pump? I'm on the right path. That's awesome. And it was it was like the most amazing. Like for all the festivals it screened at and wherever it's been, that was like the moment that was like 
This is, I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm going to keep doing it. That is so cool. And the reason I asked that is because I, I listen to it like a lot It takes so little to keep us going. I know. <laughs> we spend so really? much and it takes so really little. It really does take. Yeah. We are like comedians, you know. One we laugh. We'll suffer for weeks on end to get one good laugh. And now we can go for another year. Five five minutes of glory on stage. Now let's get on your glory. Did you have a moment like that with Every Man's War after it was finished, or like just no? I never, I never really had a chance because um, um, because I was because as producer I had kind of moved on before it started screening and getting out there. I moved on to another project, Uh, my first Leica project actually, or my not my first Leica project, my first Leica feature. And um, which feature did you, did you work on Coraline or which Coraline. one? Coraline. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's I, back up here. James works for Leica, which is yes. a the stop motion animation studio here in Portland, run by Phil Knight's son. What's his name? Or Travis. Founded, Travis Knight. Are, so you're a producer at this place, or no? I'm I'm one of those rare hybrids, above the line and below the line, straddling both You're sides. You're middle line, then. So my whole... <laughs> He's a tightrope walker. Yeah. <laughs> tight, yeah, exactly. I like your tights. <laughs> Sexy. It's a result of my three-year plan expanding into a 22-year plan. But, um, so yeah, so my day job has been grip, gaffer, for 22-plus years. Okay. And then also producing for the last... 16, 20 years, yeah. 18 years. So, yeah, I straddle the line. And then uh, at the moment, when, when that time comes, when the producing makes more money than the, the gripping or the gaffing, right. then I will have to say goodbye to Leica, which is a home to me. But I'll have to say goodbye and uh, move on, and, and Hot Squash will be... And, uh, I won't say when, but we have some ideas <laughs> about when that might happen. So let's let's roll into that. So, <sighs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. we're going to move right into like the business part of it. So this Segway is into business. Business, business. Rah, rah, rah. So it we get into. Uh, I love this story, by the way. I I never, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and um, they will kind of gloss over somebody's career, like. So you made this film, and then you know, then you got this and you this, but nobody ever stops to go. What the hell was that moment like? Right. You know, like right. what? Because that's you know, these are great human moments of like, I I just got somebody clapped for me, or somebody wrote you know a nice comment on a website from a movie I posted, and like you said, that made all the day. I will say that when we won the GI Film Festival that year, even though I couldn't be there. Um, but Thad was there, and a few other people. One of the actors, lead actor, one of the other producers. That when I learned that, that was sort of one of those moments because this is the GI Film Festival. We're like, you yeah. know, I'm a, I'm a vet, and you know, we're working on this project. It's all about you know military and service and all of that stuff. And to win that festival was kind of huge. That's awesome. Like I said, it's yeah, it's right. We are and, like, we, and it's in DC, so it was like the circle of life. Yeah. <laughs> That concludes the first part of my interview with the Hot Squatch Entertainment founders, uh, Jacqueline Galt and James Wilder Hancock. Be sure to check out the second part of the interview in the next episode, and then I'll catch you later. Thank you. Thank you.